0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series of the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Clem, and I'm one of the editorial fellows this year. Today, we are interviewing Nick Shaheen, professor of medicine and chief of gastroenterology and hepatology at UNC Chapel Hill. And he's one of the authors on ACG's new 2022 guideline updates on the diagnosis and management of Barrett's esophagus. Dr. Shaheen, welcome to the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Clem. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. To start off, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what it was like being on the committee for this iteration of the guidelines. I see that you were also involved in the 2016 version of it. So were there any differences in these two experiences?
1: It was such an enjoyable experience, Clem. The folks that were involved were incredibly engaged, incredibly knowledgeable. We had two methodologists who did the formal grading of the evidence, but got very engaged in the discussions as well and really made us understand how they looked at the evidence and how they helped us work through the strength of the evidence for each of the recommendations. There's been a lot of advances in Barrett's esophagus in the five or so years since the last time we went through this exercise, and some really fundamental issues like who with heartburn needs to be screened with Barrett's incredibly important primary care topic. And how should we do that? And how often should we do that? So, there were really fundamental questions, that had had some new light shed on them from the time that we last did this exercise to now.
0: I can imagine it was challenging to go through all of the different evidence that we have and to come up with recommendations, but I'm excited to dive in and to chat about them with you. Let's just start off by giving the listener some background on Barrett's esophagus. We do have some listeners of all different learning stages. So how does it usually present, and is it possible to have Barrett's without typical reflux symptoms?
1: Terrific question. So, Barrett's esophagus is a metaplastic change of the lining of the esophagus, meaning that you're switching from one cell type to another. The good news about the cell type that you're switching to is that it's more resistant to acid. And in fact, we think that acid reflux is one of the main risk factors for developing Barrett's. So, this is probably an adaptive change of the inner lining of your esophagus to protect yourself against acid. The bad news is that it's potentially precancerous. Now, I say that, but I want the listeners to know that we're talking about a relatively low risk of esophageal cancer in the average Barrett's esophagus patients. How low is that risk? We're talking about if you round up 1,000 patients with Barrett's esophagus and follow them for a year, we think somewhere around three patients of that 1,000 will develop esophageal cancer. So this presents an interesting public health problem because you've got an incredibly common condition, GERD causing an incredibly common change in the lining of the esophagus, Barrett's esophagus, which we think occurs in somewhere around 1% or 2% of the U.S. adult population, but leading and predisposing to a very rare cancer, a relatively rare cancer, adenocarcinoma of the esophagus, a cancer that will maybe occur in ten or 11,000 patients this year. Unfortunately, however, in those patients who do get it, it's a highly lethal cancer. It's a cancer that, where you can expect well over half to have died of the cancer within a five-year period. So once you've gotten this cancer, it's a cancer that's very difficult to treat, which argues for screening and early detection. To your question about can you get this without reflux, the answer is a resounding yes. In fact, interestingly, 40% or so of patients who develop esophageal adenocarcinoma will not report frequent GERD symptoms. So that further complicates things because if you're using GERD to find your cases and a substantial subgroup of the patients who end up with the cancer don't have GERD, those patients obviously are not gonna be available to a screening test and are not gonna be available for early intervention.
0: Yeah, that seems like a big challenge and hopefully we can shed some light on it with these upcoming questions regarding the guidelines. So. As you mentioned, this is a very tough issue. Um, When I still did clinic and residency, I had a lot of trouble deciding which patients with GERD to send for screening for Barrett's. Because it seemed like I would be sending a large part of my panel if I sent all older men with reflux symptoms. What does the guideline say about which patient with reflux symptoms should be screened?
1: That's really an important question for your listeners, Clem. And I think that this is one of those issues that really... Is worthwhile in terms of spending a couple of minutes in understanding it. You hit the nail on the head. If we send everybody who has heartburn for a screening, we're going to fill up our units, our endoscopy units, with people who are coming in who are, in general, relatively low-risk folks. So we try to stratify risk a little bit further using the other things that we know about Barrett's esophagus and the risk of Barrett's esophagus. We've already talked about one big risk factor, that's chronic GERD symptoms. So we're talking in general people who've had reflux symptoms, most commonly heartburn for five or more years. We're additionally looking for three or more other risk factors. And these risk factors include male sex, Age, people over the age of 50 have higher risk of Barrett's than those under the age of 50. Tobacco smoking, obesity, family history of Barrett's or esophageal adenocarcinoma, in a first-degree relative. And finally, and this is one that we talked a lot about in terms of formulating these guidelines, white race. Now, this is an issue. We didn't put this in lightly, and we actually wanted to avoid race as a risk factor because race is a social construct. It's not a biological construct. Unfortunately, the data we have available to us does not delve deeply enough into what is it about being a white race that causes you to be of elevated risk. But the risk is quite pronounced. So our two choices were to leave this out as a risk factor because we don't completely understand the genetics, which we thought was probably not the right thing to do given what a strong risk factor it is, or to put it in acknowledging that it doesn't really explain what we want it to explain, which is what are the genetic and other risk factors that are within that that really explain the elevated risk. So I'm hopeful that as time goes, and we're seeing it already, there's some very interesting um, data about the various genetic predeterminants for both this condition as well as esophageal adenocarcinoma, that we'll be able to address this with a better, more finely pointed answer. But for now, at least white race is one of the risk factors that we list.
0: Got it. And I appreciate your very thoughtful explanation of why that was included, because As we all know, inclusion of race as a risk factor for different things, including screening is now a very hot topic in medicine. So what about the patients that do not have chronic reflux symptoms? Is the guideline saying anything about these patients?
1: That's a terrific question. And as I mentioned before, we're losing 40% of these cancers because they're happening in non-GERD patients. So it would be wonderful for us to be able to give guidance about the patient's who don't have reflux symptoms, but deserve screening. Unfortunately, the data aren't there for us to be able to make that kind of recommendation. And this is a very layered issue though, Clem, because part of the problem is that we have a relatively expensive screening test, upper endoscopy, that we're using to try to avoid a relatively low incidence cancer. And one of the things that we'll talk about in a second here is that we're developing some other screening tests that were actually for the first time endorsed in these guidelines to perhaps allow us to broaden screening. So there may be a time, it's not in these guidelines, but there may be a time when we recommend that patients who don't have GERD but have other risk factors will be eligible for screening.
0: Some of these new technologies seem very foreign to me, so I'm excited to talk about them with you. So in terms of the evidence for screening, can you just comment a little bit about how strong the evidence was? Because at least based on my quick glance, it doesn't seem like it's based on necessarily randomized controlled trials.
1: That's correct. And in fact, our methodologists, when they graded the evidence for screening, it was graded out as being very low. The strength of the evidence was being very low. And I think that's a very fair grade. There are no randomized controlled trials that demonstrate that screening upper endoscopy prevents death from esophageal adenocarcinoma, in part because of the numbers that I alluded to earlier. If you are getting three cases per 1,000 patients followed per year, you could imagine that doing a randomized trial of screening versus no screening would be very difficult. In England, there has been an attempt to do this, which I believe ended up underpowered, in part because folks in the non-screen group cross over a fair bit. There's a lot of endoscopy that goes on in GERD patients, and keeping a group who is unscreened from having the exposure that you're measuring can be quite difficult. So the data that we're relying on are things like case control studies where they'll look and see amongst the patients with unresectable esophageal cancer what was the likelihood that you had a screening endoscopy to try to infer, The protective effect of a screening endoscopy. In general, the data suggests that those who are screened are less likely to develop unresectable cancer, develop cancer that is diagnosed at an earlier stage than those who aren't screened. So there is some circumstantial evidence that does suggest that this is protective, but it's far from as strong as we'd like it to be. And frankly, I don't know if we'll ever be completely satisfied with what we have.
0: Something interesting that was mentioned in the guideline was that some patients that are more likely to undergo endoscopy for refractory GERD have features that are very different from those who have Baird's esophagus. For example, they're more likely to be younger and female. Why do you think this disparity exists?
1: It's a terrific question, and you're right in that when you look at utilization of upper endoscopy and then you look at the risk factors for Barrett's, it's a very poor match. The the people that we're scoping many times are not those at high risk for Barrett's esophagus or esophageal adenocarcinoma, and many of the people who are at high risk never get endoscopy. I think part of that has to do with patterns of healthcare utilization being different than the epidemiology of the disease. This is a disease, as I mentioned before, of older white male smokers. And many times, these are not the folks that are going to their primary care docs for preventive care who might even be in the realm of considering getting a screening test. In fact, many of them, when they get diagnosed with their cancers, Don't have a doctor at all, and they come in presenting with dysphagia that is from the cancer itself, so we've missed our
0: opportunity at an early intervention. That's unfortunate, and hopefully podcasts like ours and other educational material can help spread the word about screening for these patients. So like screening for colorectal cancer, it seems like there are many modalities that we can use to screen for Barrett's, and you alluded to this earlier. Can you describe some of these modalities, especially some of the newer ones that our listeners might not be familiar with? Certainly.
1: So in the previous iteration of these guidelines, there was a single screening exam that was endorsed, which was screening per oral upper endoscopy. Now we have more screening tests at our disposal. The single most commonly used one is still per oral upper endoscopy, but there is a substantial amount of data now suggesting that unsedated transnasal endoscopy with an ultra-thin endoscope is quite accurate at identifying Barrett's esophagus, and that's a test that can be done in just a few minutes. It can be uh, done without the need for any systemic sedation, so the patient doesn't need to bring a driver with them It's not offered in too many places, unfortunately, because it does take some skill on the part of the endoscopist, but it can be done with a neonatal scope, which many units have, and that is a very adequate and good screening test. Perhaps the most interesting one is a novel one that really we didn't even discuss much in the previous iteration of these guidelines, but has recently had a fairly large amount of high-quality data come out about it which is a swallowable, non-endoscopic capsule. And the way it works is it's a gelatin capsule. It encloses a sponge. And what you do is the capsule's on a string. It's on a suture. You swallow the capsule. It goes down in your stomach. You're still holding the string on the outside of the patient's mouth. And the capsule dissolves in five minutes in the stomach. The sponge pops out. And then the sponge is retracted back through the esophagus, collecting cells, essentially sweeping the inside of the esophagus for cells, which can then be assessed after they've gotten off of the sponge to look for markers of either Barrett's esophagus or, as time goes on, we hope and expect dysplasia as well. So this is a wonderful way to think about screening because it could be a point of care test that could happen even in primary care and might allow us to screen lots more patients. It also should be much cheaper, at least in its initial iterations now that are showing up in the U.S. market, it is cheaper. So it's going to be a less expensive screening test that could be provided away from the endoscopy unit. If it's positive, then we could send a very enriched population because the sensitivity and specificity of this test look to be greater than 90%. So we could be harnessing that small subgroup who should then go on to get and the more expensive test to confirm the diagnosis.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. When I was reading about this, it really changed the way that I saw screening. Do you see this sponge capsule being used in primary care by generalists, or do you think it's something that still takes a proceduralist to sort of be trained to do?
1: It's really easy to do, Clem. I've had it done myself, to myself, by one of my study coordinators. um, And it's easy to administer. It's not a difficult test on either end in terms of preparing to do it. Or once you've gotten the sample back out, it's a very low risk test. And in fact, the folks that invented it who are in Cambridge, England, uh, a woman named Rebecca Fitzgerald has kind of been the mastermind behind all this recently published a very large randomized controlled trial in primary care practices in the UK and demonstrated in thousands of patients that she could greatly increase the yield of diagnosing Barrett's esophagus when compared to practices that were doing the usual standard of care endoscopy screening
0: i had compared screening for colorectal cancer for but unlike that type of screening repeat endoscopy is not recommended For barretts, if the initial screen is negative. Can you just elaborate on the rationale behind this?
1: I'm glad you hit on this, Clem, because this is a really important teaching point for your listeners. We're very used to the paradigm in the United States that screening tests need to be redone on fixed intervals because that's the way we do them for so many other things. If you're getting mammography, if you're getting colonoscopies, if you're getting pap smears, The only real question is what interval will they be repeated on as opposed to do you not repeat them again? Barrett's is different. And the interesting thing about Barrett's is that it appears that once you've had reflux for several years, three to five years, when you look in the studies, the likelihood of developing de novo Barrett's, if you haven't developed it by then, is incredibly low, well less than 1%. And when I tell patients this, they look at me with a little mistrust. Well, aren't you going to check me out? Don't I need to be followed, et cetera? And the short answer is no, that the risks are low enough that you don't really need to be followed. And it'd be relatively rare for us to look inside again. In fact, as a pure screening test, we don't recommend it. If the patient has a change in symptom complex, let's say all of a sudden they're Reflux gets much worse, or perhaps they start getting dysphagia, that would certainly cause us to look in again, or they get iron deficiency anemia. But as a pure screening test, and someone whose symptoms haven't changed, and let's say they're well controlled on a once daily acid suppressant, they really shouldn't be going for routine screening again.
0: Yeah. Thank you for stressing that point. That was a new learning point for me, too. And I just also wanted to note that in the guidelines, it does say that if during the initial screening, severe esophagitis is seen, Barrett's esophagus cannot be ruled out. And so those patients, I believe, do warrant endoscopy later on.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because that's a great point. So the same predisposing condition that we believe causes Barrett's reflux also causes breakdown of the tissue at the bottom of the esophagus called erosive esophagitis. Now, Because erosive esophagitis essentially denudes the esophagus of its normal inner layer, the normal epithelium, and because Barrett's is an epithelial disease, we can't tell if you have bad esophagitis, we can't tell if you have Barrett's. So if we look down and we see bad esophagitis, then we're going to want to look in again. And the reason we want to look again is twofold. One is we want to make sure that we've healed with appropriate therapy the esophagitis because untreated esophagitis can lead to things like hemorrhage or stricture. And number two, we wanna make sure that once we've healed that esophagitis and we have relatively normal looking mucosa there, that there is no Barrett's esophagus. So for those two reasons, if they do have a lot of inflammation, we will ask them to come back and get scoped again.
0: Great. We won't go into the minutiae here uh, since I think this falls more into the realm of proceduralists, but can you just give us a broad overview of the different treatment options for Barrett's esophagus depending on how severe it is? Sure.
1: I think the important take-home point for your listeners is that we can make an early and very effective intervention in Barrett's that will, in the vast majority of cases, stop people from getting cancer. I wouldn't have said that even 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the only intervention we had for Barrett's that was starting to show precancerous change or dysplasia was esophagectomy, which was a morbid procedure that was occasionally mortal. Uh, very difficult procedure to get people through. In the last 10 years, we've had the relatively rapid development of endoscopic therapies, including freezing therapies, burning therapies, a variety of different tissue removal therapies, all of which have the same idea in mind. Remove the inner lining of the esophagus, let healthy stuff grow back. And the central observation here is that if you injure the Barrett's and give rigorous acid suppression, what comes back is not the Barrett's. What comes back is normal esophageal lining. And if we can cause that change throughout the entirety of the Barrett's, we're going to lower the risk of that patient ever developing cancer in that Barrett's by greater than 90%. And there was a landmark study in New England Journal about a decade ago that demonstrated that you could get rid of the Barrett's and cause a remarkable reduction in cancer risk in these patients who had Barrett's and precancerous change in their Barrett's. But the important thing for most folks to know is that this isn't a futile attempt to find patients with Barrett's because we don't have anything good to do for them. We do have very good things to do for them if they're developing precancerous change and we can radically change their outcomes
0: you bring up a perfect segue because you had mentioned acid suppression. So a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with using acid suppression or high dose sort of PPIs for heptic ulcer disease. What is the role of this dosing in Barrett's esophagus and what sort of regimen should they be on?
1: Yeah, that's an important question because you'll see folks on both sides of this. This is what we know. There are some data that suggest that patients who are on a PPI are less likely to progress to precancerous changes in their Barrett's or cancer itself than those maintained on an H2 blocker or nothing. On the other hand, there aren't good data to suggest that extremely high doses of PPI will stop you from getting cancer in your Barrett's. There was a recent study out of the UK called the Aspect Trial that suggested that high dose, really high dose, PPI plus an aspirin might give you a little bit better outcome. But interestingly, it wasn't primarily in cancer. It was actually in overall mortality. So we don't know what to make of the data. So for those reasons, and because we're not sure that really high doses of PPI are going to benefit our patients any more than low dose, what the current guidelines suggest, Is at least once daily PPI therapy chronically in patients who have Barrett's, unless they have an allergy or other contraindication to PPI use. You don't need super high doses. Now, in a good third of patients or so with Barrett's, 25%, they won't get good symptom control on once daily PPI. And in those patients, it's certainly fine to titrate up the dose to say twice daily if they need it for symptom control. But as an anti-neoplastic measure, we don't recommend real high doses of PPI like BID or TID because we're not sure of
0: its utility. Got it. And what about other anti-reflux management, such as surgery for control of Barrett's?
1: Anti-reflux surgery is quite effective at improving symptoms of GERD and decreasing erosive esophagitis. So in patients, especially those who are not well-controlled on PPI therapy, it's absolutely reasonable to think about doing an anti-reflux surgery. However, the risk of cancer in the patient with regular garden variety Barrett's is so low, as I mentioned earlier, probably 3 per 1,000 per patient here. Doing an anti-reflux surgery as an anti-neoplastic measure, i.e., we're going to do this surgery to make it less likely to ever get cancer in your Barrett's, We don't recommend that because the cancer risk at baseline is so low, and because no study has ever convincingly demonstrated that patients who are treated with an anti-reflux surgery have lower risks of cancer than those who are treated with anti-reflux medicines. So in most patients, a little bit of anti-reflux medicine is going to be all they need.
0: I think that's a great point. And over and over, we should make the distinction that perhaps the treatment of reflux might be different than the treatment for Barrett's. There are certain things that we might want to do for symptom management for reflux, such as high-dose PPIs or surgery, if indicated, but not necessarily to prevent cancer progression in Barrett's esophagus. Dr. Shaheen, do you have any final remarks on this guideline?
1: I would say that if there's one thing I was going to emphasize to listeners, especially those who are doing work in primary care, is that these patients are in your clinic right now. You're seeing them today. One to 2% of the U.S. population has this. If you don't ask the questions, you won't uncover the patients who need screening for Barrett's esophagus. So please ask about heartburn. It's become part of the American condition. You know, I can't believe I ate the whole thing and all this, but you need to ask them. And if you do ask them and you see the patients that have the risk factors that we discussed earlier, please send them along to be screened because you may literally save their lives.
0: Well, thank you so much for emphasizing that. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Nick Shaheen for joining us today to discuss the latest Barrett's Esophagus guidelines. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamnick. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.